This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original series. I'm Norman Lau, and we have yet another fantastic show for all of you listeners out there, our red shirts and our blue beamers out there listening in Trek FM land. Now, waiting for instructions from the great teacher and the man who can't wait to put that amazing oversized fishbowl helmet on to learn everything there is to know about podcasting is our fearless Mr. Atos, Jeffrey Harlan. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing good, and you know, I, I think while it's at it, that giant fishbowl helmet's also just gonna like perm out my hair. I'm gonna have like a nice big '70s fro, like Kirk in the Gold Key comics when he went undercover. And how dare you? Know, how, dare you. <laughs> how dare you, sir? <laughs> yeah, and then I'll then I'll, uh, I'll I'll set my uniform to 72 degrees, and I'll just be fine when I uh, go back to uh, visit Zarabeth. <laughs> 72 degrees, a very livable condition, I must say. Unless you're Chekhov. He has a very thick skin. He does. He does. And ready to beam down also with Chekhov to Sigma Dracona 6? 6 or 7? They didn't really make uh, that really clear in the episode. Is our chief sound engineer, Ken Tripp. Are you ready for the show, Ken? I am ready, guys. Let's go. There's a lot to get into. Absolutely. Absolutely. So... For all of you TOSers out there, and we've been dropping a little bit of hint here and there, we're going to be covering Spock's brain. Why are we covering Spock's brain, you may be asking yourself. Well, to be fair, in the Babel conference, before we started this Phase 2 crew, one of the things that I asked all the listeners is to let us know what you wanted us to talk about, what you wanted us to tackle here on Standard Orbit. And several of you asked us to delve a little bit into the third season of the original series. Coincidentally enough, the very first episode of that third season is Spock's Brain. And at the end of this show, we hope that at least you won't... Hate's a strong word. I don't like using hate. We hope that you appreciate Spock's Brain for what it tried to do and... We hope that we might be able to persuade you for not lumping it into what pretty much fandom has done, and that has thrown it onto the number one most hated episode of the original series, if not Star Trek ever, which I think is unfair. So let's get into it. Let's just dive right into Spock's brain. And Jeff, why don't you give us an overview of what this episode is all about before we start really getting into the finer points of Spock's brain. Well, in this exciting episode, an alien female beams aboard the ship, and after incapacitating the crew, she surgically removes Spock's brain. Kirk and the crew have just hours to locate it and uh, restore it before Spock's body dies. Brain is gone. Now, some of the, is, yeah. Oh, go uh, ahead, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say some of the uh, context on this thing. Um, it's really interesting. Um, it uh, aired... Right, not long after they did the first heart transplant in South Africa. And so doing a brain transplant was like really just like crazy science fiction at the time. Not so much science fiction anymore. You know, it's kind of more yeah. like science fact. And that was, you know, that's always the great tenant of the original series. They tried to pull in real time dynamics into their storytelling. So there are a couple of interesting facts that I think the listeners would be really interested in learning about the show before we actually get into why this show is so supremely disliked. So, Ken, 
there are a couple things that we've talked about here and you know um there are issues with the change of command if you will there are issues with the writing when you watch this episode what did you feel first of all did you feel that shift in the in the weather yeah i think it was pretty obvious uh that there was a definite shift in in the approach of the show and it's it's hard it's hard to say watching it all this time after it's aired and knowing so much of the background is how much did you pick up on or how much were you looking for but uh when you really when you really go back and and rewatch it uh like we've been doing this week uh one you you can definitely see that they were trying to save money but on the other side of it too they were they there was there was a lot more interaction in this episode uh, amongst the crew, and I'm going to get into that later a little bit. Uh, but but definitely you could you could get a feel for it. And um, part of the problem too is what 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 challenges you when you watch a show like this and it's remastered with the updated effects. It's also hard to say okay they 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 didn't spend as much money on it because I I didn't watch it in the original original and I haven't watched those original ones in quite a while. So. Yeah, you could definitely get that feel that uh, there had been a changing of the guard in season three specifically. But, you know, just the whole concept and the way this show came off, this wasn't up to Star Trek specs. Well, a couple interesting things here in terms of the history of the show. And Spock's Brain was the first episode aired of the third season, as I mentioned before. It was broadcast September 20th in 1968. So you can do the math. It's been quite a while. And it was the first episode to air after NBC moved the show from 8.30 to 10 p.m. on Friday nights, which even today is known as the death slot. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there was, there was a change that was happening. And we all know that the original series' third season was salvaged from the B. Joe Trimble and fan letter-writing campaign that pretty much brought it back but in a very, I don't know, what's the right way of seeing it? In a very skeletonized way. Because probably the sets were on the way out, the costumes were on the way out. A lot of the writers have probably gone on to different positions or looking for different work. I mean, Gene Kuhn was trying to figure out how he's going to end his career with Star Trek. Jeff, could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, he uh, uh, had actually... He was still technically under contract with uh, uh, Star Trek to write a few more scripts, but he had just signed another contract with Universal Studios, so he's caught in the middle and Universal saying he's not supposed to be working for anybody else. And so for him to get the scripts done for Star Trek that he needed to do, he actually wrote those under a pseudonym. Uh, so this episode, it says uh, it was written by Lee Cronin, but that was actually Gene Kuhn. And uh, some people, uh, myself included, in years past, I'd assumed that he used the pseudonym because he wasn't happy with the final uh, version of the script and how it turned out. But it was actually because he was working for somebody else and he was doing this kind of under the table. Actually, um, Ken, that's a, there was an interesting point that you brought up. Now, you said that you were watching these shows in your rewatch on the remastered HD version. And when I was watching it, one of the things that really stuck out to me was the quality of the sets, the unfinished corners, the way that the sets almost felt like they were salvaged from warehouses. There was a great deal of unrest happening at this time in Star Trek. Gene Kuhn was trying to complete his writing contract. Mark Daniels, the director, a veteran director, I believe 14 or more episodes, I believe he felt marginalized by the then line producer, Fred Freiberger, and budget was always a concern. Is that something that you really felt you could taste, feel, touch, almost just absorb when you were watching the show? Because HD, sure, it does a really great job of trying to modernize the overall look of what they were trying to do with the original series. But as with anything that has been cleaned up and polished and the resolution has been, you know, clean uh sparkled and and shined up for everyone to see you also see a majority of the flaws and i think that was really at play here when we were watching this particular episode i agree and if you if you really do pay attention to the sets and and how much they redressed it or even when they're on the planet's surface just how many gaps there are it's it it was really sad uh you, you know that they're they're you have a group of professionals that want to do it right 
And I can only imagine how frustrating that must be when you can't go back and recreate, or I'm sorry, create new sets and, and new dynamics. So even when they're in, I guess, the computer room where Spock's brain is, and you look at all the um, the displays that you've seen so many times before, and you look at where Spock's brain's housed, which was the cloaking device slash nomad, um, all kind of wired in together, you can see that they were doing whatever they could to kind of put these things together as cheap as possible. And that's unfortunate because in the previous two seasons, you know, they were really making an effort and they were spending some real money to, to, to produce a high quality show. And, you know, Star Trek always got kind of hit on for being a cheap production. I mean, the whole show was kind of given that label. And I think it probably stuck more so because of the third season. And it kind of plastered the whole the whole series to a degree. So, yeah, you could definitely feel it. And you could feel for them because, like I said, they are professionals. They want to do it right. And in uh, this episode, certainly, well, it wasn't the best way to kick off season three when you consider how strong they, they, they kicked off their first two seasons with those episodes of Mock Time and Where No Man Has Gone Before. Now, I'm, in, I'm just impressed that they were able to do as well as they did considering the constraints that they had. Um, and one thing that I was reading uh, in Mark Cushman's uh, These Are the Voyages, uh, there was a, uh, a quote from the set designer, John Dwyer, and he said that uh, his quote was, I had a budget of about five grand, but by the time you got done taking out for all the people who had to get a piece of that, I had about 500, so I really had to scratch a lot. And then it's also said that uh, Fred Feinberg called him the uh, science fiction dumpster diver. Uh, he would literally go dumpster diving around the studio's back lot and just grab whatever he could find to throw that in to make pieces for the sets and make do with as whatever he could find because uh, he had so little money to spend. That being the case, and you can actually see that in the quality of the overall production, it still pulled a pretty high Nielsen rating for the time. So there's no, I mean, there's no secret that Star Trek was still popular up to a point. However, usually, in the case of seasons three, four different series, that's the strongest season. That's the season when everything starts to gel, when the actors begin to find their voices, when the script writers really have their momentum, when everything seems to be in working condition and, and gaining momentum and steam and really pushing the narrative forward. But I felt when I first watched this and rewatched it again, that they were doing so in a way in the first half of this episode and not so much in the second half. And that there was almost an enterprise, and I'm talking about the series here, an enterprise type of feel where you felt that the talent was fighting with the producers who in turn were fighting with the front office, who in turn were fighting with the bean counters, who in turn were fighting with and on and on and on. There just seemed like there was a lot of internal strife that was really affecting the overall quality of what originally in concept form was a very interesting idea. So let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about how our first impressions were when we watched this because I really do think that in the broad stroke of things, there were really solid ideas for the premiere episode of the third season. What do you guys think about that? Uh, yeah, I agree with you. There's uh, just, like I was saying earlier, they'd just done the first heart transplant not too long before this, and that was actually a talking point when they came up with the story idea. And it's just a really phenomenal idea, and it started off really dead serious. And in... Uh, the uh, these are the voyages. Uh, it said uh, it went into detail about how some of the changes that were called on uh, to the script. They're like asking for more humor, and then oh, cut back the humor. Oh, we need some more, and back and forth, and back and forth, and it just really hurt the script. And the first two acts, or you know, the first half, the first two thirds was really kind of set, and it was really serious, and then the the final part of it suddenly it just takes a totally different tone and it's just really jarring to go from dead serious to cracking jokes. And what was there in the first half that really captured you as an audience member? Imagine yourself waiting all this time 
listening about this letter campaign, and then finally hearing Star Trek got renewed because of all of the fan passion that pretty much drove the front office to making this decision. Ken, if you were there as an audience member waiting, turning on that TV Friday night, 10 o'clock, waiting for this to happen, and then all of a sudden you're watching this, what do you think that you would have felt at the time in that first half, kind of like transplant yourself, just sitting there, just waiting, just anticipating this to happen? Yeah, yeah. I I think I I would have been um, pretty pleased at the you know, the first half of the show, honestly, I really would have. And there's, there's a couple of reasons why. If you're a big fan of this, the, the series and you really like the entire cast, one thing that worked very well, which I thought was missing, was the chemistry that evolved in this episode compared to most of the others. And what I mean by that is when Spock was gone, um, or I should say his brain was gone and he was in sickbay, I really liked how the bridge became a team meeting and how they were all kind of working together to solve the mystery. In other words, everybody kind of stepped up, and everybody had speaking parts, and it wasn't just I, sir, and, you know, course laid in, sir. It was feedback, and they were having conversations, and conversations with the captain, and that's pretty rare, right? And so you, you saw where Sulu and Chekhov Ahura all had this increased responsibility. You had this kind of new trio with Scotty, McCoy, and Kirk, you know, kind of going down to find find Spock. So there was there was a piece of this that, if I guess if I was watching it from the very beginning, and you kind of wanted to see the whole show kind of come together a little bit and break out beyond the the original three, you could get a sense that maybe this was going to happen more going forward. That they were going to utilize the other cast members, and I think they do a little bit more in, in season three. But not like that, not with everybody on the bridge participating in conversation. And then it just sunk like a stone. <laughs> it, it totally uh, it took sunk, me out it. It sunk like the uh, elevator that uh, the right, morgues used to trap the morgues. Yes, when, when it, it really did. And, you know, you could even accuse DeForest Kelly, who was such a consummate professional, of going all Shatner. I mean, I thought... His acting was way over the top, as well as the plot being well way over the top. And, you know, it was just one of those things where you just went, oh, my goodness. You know, what what is going on with this episode? And, and whoever came up with this concept? So if I had been waiting, if I had been part of that letter-writing campaign, um, overall, I would have been, I guess... The, the the back half of it just just kind of killed the whole thing and uh you know we're always looking this through you know uh, a different lens anyway just being so many years later but if i had to put myself in that spot i, I would have said dang you know this has become lost in space this is not the star trek that i know well let's get into that a little bit because one of the things that i wanted to do with this episode is actually focus on the more positive merits of this show because spock's brain over time has been I think horribly maligned, in my own opinion. Watching this back and taking the account of every single criticism that this show has endured over the last 50 years, I don't think personally that it has earned that right. And yes, it started off very strong. I think that one of the best moments in this entire show was that meeting. They were actually analyzing the problem as a crew, as the command staff of the Enterprise, Uhura had a very strong piece of dialogue. Chekhov was able to actually use his ability as a junior science officer de facto since Spock was gone. Sulu obviously was able to break out his logic in terms of which planet he believed was the most prevalent for Spock to have been transported to. Each one of those characters felt like they were giving Kirk the right piece of information that he needed to weigh on. And then, of course, he had that great Kirk moment where it's like, well, if I make the wrong decision, Spock dies. So with all of that deliberation, it still ends up making, you know, Kirk have to make that decision. That's that's very tropish Star Trek. That's what we've been accustomed to. And then. Sigma Draconis six or Sigma Draconis seven, I think that's probably a hint of where things started to go off the rails a little bit. Because when they finally made it down to the planet, the whodunit part of it is still there. But then you got introduced to this whole dynamic of 
barbarian males on the surface and this technologically supported female, I guess it would be government uh, or organizational part of the planet is, you know, they're separated from each other. It's hard, it's hard for me to kind of like generalize these terms because they were so soft to begin with. So when you saw that happen, when you saw that dynamic happen, do you think that this is where kind of the confusion started to happen with this episode where the fans were like, I'm not exactly sure what just happened here, but I'm trying to make sense of it and it's not working. Yeah. Things got a little, uh, um, off, uh, the rails on the episode at that point. Um, and that partly I think was, uh, from the studio cause they were sending in notes saying, well, we don't think you should do this or that. And we think you should make this change or that change. Like they're, setting up this society where the men live above ground and the women live underground. And there's the question of, well, how do they make more of them if they've been this way for centuries? And so then they say, well, we capture the the guys and take them underground. Well, then what happens with the male babies? Apparently they must get abandoned uh, above ground. And, that was something that they got brought up in the in, in drafted the script, and then they were told to take it out because the network executives didn't want to have somebody talking about abandoning babies on the uh, on TV, and that just uh, kind of muddied the whole plot and it took it off uh, on a tangent it didn't really need to go on to at that point. Well, I, I guess that. There wasn't a lot to muddy up from my point of view. I mean, you, you kind of figured it out, even though they didn't they didn't say it, you know, that they bring pleasure and pain. So I, I, I get it. Um, I kind of got it, but it I, I think at the same time, it it just, it, it was something that I, I'm not sure they really needed to go into. And maybe they could have rewritten the way that the society was presented so it was a little more straightforward. Yeah, they, oh, definitely. I mean, there's there's so many things. I I guess I was playing it back in my head, you know, Norman, and, and what you were asking initially, too, was, you know, if you were watching this for the first time after all, you know, you're waiting and you've done this campaign and the show comes back on, a lot of the things that we're picking up on, and, and I, I'll be honest with you, I was watching it, I missed the, the miss on the six and the seven. So I wonder how many things were missed on that initial broadcast the very first time you watch it. It's it's like anything else. You, you you watch it, you take time to digest it. I'm sure there were a lot of people going, I can't believe we just we just watched this episode and they're trying to figure it out. And like all of us, because when you root for something you really like, you're trying to pull the positive and not so much the negative. And I think back then I think people gave things more of a shot than they than they do today. But um I think that that that's a big piece of it too is you know it it just came off so campy at the end even the way Spock was reacting after everything was reconnected for example that was not the Spock that we knew at all you know I mean there was a lot of emotion in that and it just seemed that even Leonard Nimoy to a point was over the top and it's it almost felt like they were returning off of a very long hiatus and they were trying to rediscover who these characters were again, because DeForest really was giving a tour de, <laughs> I'm going to use a pun here, a tour de forest performance. I mean, really, you know, if that's not the McCoy that we're generally accustomed to. That's not the Spock that we're generally accustomed to. Nope. And, but what I do like about the show and I'm, and, 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 and trying to mind the positive out of it, I do like the broad strokes that they were able to write about this society that has been split in two because of the way that the controller, basically this overarching mechanical demigod that has all of the information of the known galaxy and can impart it onto his citizens has control over this civilization, if you will. It's a very stagnant civilization and looking at this episode, I mean, it really is no different, uh, different than what we saw in, say, A Taste of Armageddon, where a mini R7 was held to this particular model of warfare. There are going to be bombs that kill people without actually using real bombs. This, this civilization is completely stagnated through warfare. At the same time, I was also looking at from something like a Return of the Archons point of view, where this civilization, they have this red hour where everybody goes crazy because that's when they're supposed to let off steam based on what Landrew has programmed into them. So 
What I do see in this episode that's very traditionally Star Trek, especially with Kirk, is that Kirk once again challenges the authority of an overarching supercomputer that has stagnated a society to the point where they're no longer in personal development of themselves. And at the end of the episode, he's like, well, you're just going to have to come together. You're either going to have to move up, take that elevator up to the surface, or you're going to have to bring some of them down. But either way, you're going to have to evolve as a species because what's going on right now is not working. This great teacher can only give you so much information. But once that information dissipates over time, you're left completely in a situation that's to totally dependent on technology and not dependent on yourselves. Am I the only one who saw that or did you guys see that too? Yeah, I agree with you completely. Um, the uh, that, that society just completely did not work and there was uh one thing that i i found when i was doing some of my research on this was there's actually an an economics textbook that talked about um it was uh called modern principles microeconomics uh from uh, george mason university press and it says talking about how it's virtually impossible to have a command economy and it used this as an example in that not even spock's brain could run an economy from the top down and uh, I, I just thought that was an interesting insight to, as a takeaway from the episode, is, uh, from using it as uh, an example of uh, an economic system that doesn't work. Yeah. Well, you know, we all know that men can be lured in by baskets of fruit, right? We, we know that. So. <laughs> and right. axes. And axes. And, a- oh, yeah, <laughs> tools. <laughs> yeah, we got to get those things. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, it was it was uh, it was a society that that just on 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 the surface made made no sense. Uh, you 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 could have flipped it; it wouldn't have made any difference. Men below, women above. Um, you know, it, it never was really really clear how and why Spock's brain would be the perfect thing to uh, to drive this, and how it was going to last for ten thousand years. I mean, there there's so many gaps in this plot. It's it's kind of a, a a long road to, I guess, to go down to try to to try to pull all of it together, but it did allow Kirk his speech. It did allow Kirk, you know, to to talk about how things are supposed to evolve and that you guys will find a way and and all that stuff. And uh, I I just hope that um, the elevator wasn't broken after they they removed Spock's brain because I don't know how they were going to get up and down anymore. But uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of challenges with that, you know, a lot of challenges. Um, and for such an advanced society, there was one question, too, I I really was trying to get the answer to. And, you know, forgive me a little bit for going off, off script, but was the woman's boots attached to their bras or was the bras attached to their boots? <laughs> I think I think the uh, I think their boots were attached to actually their miniskirts. I think I'm not sure. I, I don't know. They were the exact same color. And I just well, never mind. Um, we'll We'll go on. Because we're well, talking, you know, this is this is a very serious conversation. Yeah. Well, I mean, with that's an interesting thing because you're you're talking about a society of women who has been essentially given control over the planet, but control under the auspices of what the great teacher allows them to exact over the over the morgues, the morgues and I morgues. It's a very interesting concept, and I can see why that there would be some some issue with that you know with the with the community watching this because yes i mean it goes into that whole what is happening with the dynamic of men and women in this show not just the men and women in terms of star trek just the men and women with what they're trying to accomplish with this species it it's very convoluted and they're trying to give the female part of the of this morgue species all this great knowledge and independence and strength however they have to go and search out a male brain in order for them to be able to have this control over their government now there's also this kind of sidebar argument with well it's not just a male brain it's a vulcan brain that happens to be from a male vulcan so it's the most complex brain that they chose so this is going to create a lot of great dialogue and debate in the Babel Conference because I think that this is this is kind of where Star Trek has started to get a little bit of its of a target on its back for not staying true to the tenets of Star Trek, i.e., not staying true to going out there and seeking and boldly going in that 
fair and diverse kind of way. It, it, it became very pedestrian at the end. Mm-hmm. I think that's the right word. I think it's a fair word to say. Sure. And I think that's where some of these complaints started to get levied against what happened to Star Trek. So let's take a look at some of the criticisms here. I mean, Spock's brain is widely considered by fans to be the worst episode of the series, if not in Star Trek in general. Do you think that's fair? I think there are other episodes that you could call worse than this one. This one started off really, really well. It's just in the last, you know, 15, 20 minutes of the episode that it just kind of fell apart. I agree with that. There's, there's, I guess, you know, when, when you, when you come back off a hiatus and you have this much time in theory to come up with a big plot, right? You know, that's your, your writing timelines usually start somewhere in May and June and you, you start filming in August and then you, you, you broadcast in September, you would think you would be able to come up with something that would really knock everybody's socks off of. And, um, and the fact that it didn't, and it uh, it kind of, I guess, set the expectation. You know, and the episode that followed was really, really good. So it was, it was just a shame if they if they had flipped it, if they had started off with the Enterprise incident, for example, and then Spock's brain followed, and then another you know decent episode, it would have got lost in the shuffle. And I don't know if there would be the criticism that it has, because to Jeff's point, there are some other episodes that are also pretty weak. Uh, in the series, and uh, in, in for a lot of this episode, it was actually enjoyable for the reasons that I had given early, and the, the, to the points that you were talking about earlier. So, I, I agree. It's um, it's it's a shame that it's uh, it it served to be the the launch point because that's what people that remember, and they'll always remember. And uh, it's 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 too bad in that sense. You know, to just to go on and illustrate the further point of what was happening between the production offices. I'd like to reference something from Mark Cushman's These Are the Voyages, and this is season three. This is page 91, paragraph one, because I think this is a very important segment from that, that excerpt that covered Spock's brain. James Doohan, and he doesn't say a bad thing about anybody. You know, I mean, he was, you know, he was very kind of, you know, he was like kind of like Scotty, you know, he was just, you know, he wasn't very controversial. But in this, he said, Fred Freiberger had no idea what he was doing. He was just a line producer, suddenly handed creative control over a show that was nothing else like nothing else on television. He was simply out of his depth, and boy, that was loudly announced to the fans with this episode. Did you guys feel that 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 sentiment translated into the way the show was produced? No, I I, I thought it was just uh, poor writing, and you know it, the people behind the scenes, and and this is one of the things I wonder too because. You know, for a long time, when you asked a lot of the cast members, especially when when I was going to conventions in the 80s, they would come back with lines like, geez, I really don't remember, or it was a job back then. And I wonder how much the influence and a lot of the criticisms that that came back to them on these episodes kind of made them look back, and and I'm not saying they're wrong, but, you know, I've seen... William Shatner many, many times asked questions and having no idea what to answer. And he'd say, you know, this happened 20 years ago. I don't remember these things. And um, and so I think over time, I wonder, because it was such maligned and, and it got enough press that they kind of look back at it, you know. Uh, Leonard Nimoy, on the other hand, was somebody who did remember every detail of, of making the show. And, you know, the, the fact that, that, that he had some poor things to say about it I'm quite certain it was uh, it was real, but you know I I, um, I guess I didn't come after it and say you know that that I if I was watching it for the first time and I saw Fred Freiberger's name on the credits would would I have a clue that anything really changed behind the scenes? I mean, how many of these things are unknown to the casual fans or even the fervent fans of a show? Uh, it's stuff we learn when we go back and look at its history versus at the time that it's occurring. So I don't know if it was something that we could have said uh, was was out of his depth because the next episode was a great episode. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Ken. It's, uh, you know, if you look at season three as a whole, there are a lot of very good episodes and there's a, a few that are less so, but to judge his ability based on the failings of a single episode that may or may not even have been in his control. You know, things like the budget coming down from on high, uh, the 
rewrites that were needed, all the back and forth on the rewrites, things that were conflicting from uh, information coming from uh, higher up. You know, they'll ask for one thing one time and then you send them that and they're like, no, that's not what I wanted. I want this instead. And it, in the end, they have to finalize something and get something filmed and out there. Um, otherwise, they're all going to lose their jobs. And, uh, you know, in the end, they've got to do something. So I, I think this was probably the best compromise that they were able to make with what they had in the time that they had available. And it actually is not that bad. It's actually a lot of fun to watch. Uh, as much as people bag on this episode, it's it's fun to watch this episode. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, make a drinking game out of it or something. Uh, it, it's, you know... Um, you know, you hear the word brain, take a shot. You know, you'll die of uh, alcohol poisoning by the end of the episode. But, Most likely. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's not as bad as people make it out to be, I think. I think over time what happens is that there's a phrase out there called Chinese whispers. And if you line up 10 people in a row, you tell them one fact by the first person to the 10th person that has changed not only word and phrase and tone, but probably in context. And I think... That when Spock's brain first came out, it wasn't received that well. I think some of the fans were probably upset about it. There were articles that were written. There were quotes probably taken out of context. There were interviews that were probably typed out in a different manner than the way that they were intended. And then there's the, the greatness of time that tends to color a lot of opinion. And then when these are talked about again, and then when they end up on social media lists and lists on, say, like io9 or Gadget or any of these geek websites, they're sensationalized because they need to talk about something and make a point of creating these lists that are arbitrarily however you would like to make them. So when you take a look at Spock's brain in total, it is an actually decent episode. It starts off way stronger than it finishes. And there was a really good idea in there buried amidst a sea of bureaucracy that happened in the Paramount studio offices at the time. And you really could feel the distancing that Gene Roddenberry had from where he probably would have wanted this to go. It just, his influence was there up to a point. And I think that you could actually feel that in this episode. But overall, just to throw that positive spin on it, there is value to be found here. There are great moments. And I think that it it's credit to the episode that they pretty much do it without Spock at all. Because Spock really was kind of like the most popular character coming out of season two. He was rivaling Kirk in lines. Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner were... You know, they were having issues because all the popularity that Spock was getting in the fan mail, driving his appearance time on the episodes, and then just to kind of summarily take him out of the season opener, that's a bold move. So, I don't know. I, I thought that there was a great amount of fun to the episode, too. I agree. I, I wonder, too, if you if you think about what... Um what Shatner and the team were doing when they were making Star Trek V, if there's some similarities here a little bit. You had a, a different team working on it. Uh, I don't think they intentionally were trying to put out bad material. Who would? And I think that there might be a little bit of revisionist history as to what, I guess, who and what did what for, for, in order to not, I guess, accept accountability for which is an which is an episode that doesn't live up to expectations, right? We all the seventy nine episodes, you know, is it ten? Is it a dozen that probably aren't great? Um, and and the, and you have this in the middle, and and again, it started off strong. It really did start off strong. So, you know, it, it's not like they weren't on a, a pretty decent course, and they could have come up with something pretty interesting and very science fiction. Uh, it, you know, just just as far as uh, an interesting plot line, it just unfortunately got silly you know before we wrap up this segment and get to hailing frequencies because we have some really cool feedback that came from our listeners on the babel conference 
or our readers on the Baber conference talking about Spock's brain because we like to we like to almost uh, get a lot of, of audience participation in before we get into these episodes. There were three small details that I thought were really interesting that keep getting brought up in a lot of the criticisms about this episode. The first one, the barbarians speaking English. Why do I bring that up? Because the barbarian speaking English seems to have a very, it, it ruffles a lot of feathers. And just to be fair, there are many occasions in Star Trek where they go to alien planets and we assume that either it's the universal translator that's working or they just respect the audience enough to know that, okay, there's some logical reason why that these people are actually speaking English. I mean, in the Apple, they were speaking English. Um, I don't see why this would be any different in this case. Did that, did that even bother you in any way? Didn't bother me at all. I just assumed that they were using a universal translator hidden in a pocket somewhere. You know, when it, when when I saw it again, I did kind of laugh for a second, but put it all in perspective again. You know, it's, it's something they were doing throughout the entire series. And when you don't have any kind of a budget, you're certainly not going to spend money doing subtitles or make up a language and then run it through some kind of device to decode. So I, I just attributed it again to the universal translator. But it was funny. You know, I, I, I thought that kind of added to... Um, I guess a lot of the criticisms that were given to the show, it was just something you, you pick up and you look at this big guy and, you know, he speaks pretty well. So it was... Yeah, and it, it would it kill the pacing for them to take time out oh, to sure. learn the alien language every single episode, too. Exactly. And, and that's one and of no the reasons... No one would really care. No one yeah. cares. Yeah. And, and let's go all the way back to, in contrast to one of the best episodes of Star Trek, Balance of Terror. Do you really think that in the very first meeting between the Romulans and the Federation on screen that they were able to speak and translate Romulan. <laughs> you know, I mean, remember, they never met each other. They've never even seen each other. And all of a sudden on screen, they understand each other. Mm. Had and kind they of a backdoor because they had with Morse code, yeah. which was equally amazing. That, that had kind of a backdoor because they had established that they had fought a war a hundred years earlier. So they, and they signed a treaty. So Clearly, they had some kind of a translation for Romulan, but uh, I mean, it, like, again, I, I just kind of give it a pass because, you know, you, you got to give something to the pacing, you know, and that's something, you know, kind of a little bit off, but uh, they did that with Stargate, too, because, I mean, in the f movie, they spent like half of the movie trying to figure out what these people are saying, and in the TV show, suddenly everybody speaks English, and whatever, uh, just roll with it. Right, exactly. You just kind of have to let that one go. Um, another cool detail, when they beamed down to Sigma Draconis, I'm going to say seven because they said seven by this time, there was a really cool little piece of dialogue that gets lost behind uh, the main dialogue where Kirk says to his away team, set your uniforms for 72 degrees. That was pretty interesting because now... In canon, they actually said that those uniforms have some type of environmental quality to them. What did you guys think about that? That was awesome. I mean, it it kind of makes sense. I mean, we got thermal blankets, uh, you know, it, a couple of hundred years from now, maybe we figured out a way to make that technology smaller and work it into the fabric of our clothing, especially if it's, you know, Starfleet, where they're going to be going into who knows what kind of an environment from day to day. Right. But it's, inter it's interesting in contrast to, say, the naked time when Sulu was down there, you know, he was freezing to death. He's like, can you guys send down some hot coffee? <laughs> you know, I mean, it would have been nice to have those environmental suits figured out by them. Maybe they did something. Maybe they. Oh, it's a couple of years know. later. Maybe it's a, a new invention. I know they figured out something during the course of the mission. <laughs> it was and a Russian invention. Yeah, it, exactly. And lastly, right. and lastly, there was a huge issue about um, McCoy finishing up the surgery on Spock. And when Spock stood up, he had a completely perfect head of Vulcan hair. And th that above any other point was really a huge point of controversy. But I pose this to all of you. In Star Trek IV, when... McCoy was trying to fix Chekhov's head when he fell. He had a subdural hematoma. He used an invention, a gadget, a device. He didn't use any type of cutting tool. I don't see why this would have been any different. Yeah, and they've also established dermal regenerators and uh, all kinds of other nifty devices that instantly heal scars and grow back tissue. So why not grow back the hair that he might have had to cut around? Oh, I just figured it was... Um 
I don't know if you saw the man with two brains, you know, you just kind of push down and you spin and the head comes right off. <laughs> <laughs> I took it as maybe being some kind of device that allowed you to kind of, you know, screw it on, screw it off, and, and it would be seamless in the future. And hey, even today we have um, stuff called Durabond, right? You don't need uh, stitches and you don't need Band-Aids anymore. You, you put this, this, uh, this chemical on, on the cut, it seals it and it heals it, and, um, you know, it's... That exists now, so I, I don't see why in a few hundred years you would have these types of surgery and you would have no signs of that surgery occurring. And then there's also, you know, maybe it was some kind of an extension of transporter technology. They beamed the brain in and out. Yeah, it was just, these are the funny things that pile up on this episode over time. So I thought those were kind of interesting points to bring up. And we would love to hear your opinions on that matter, especially Spock's quaff, you know, if uh, if that brought you any type of irritation when you saw the episode. So let us know. Send us an email. Send us a voicemail. Write it up on the Babel Conference after you listen to this episode. I'm sure that if you're listening in your car or if you have your headphones on at home or if you're at the office you know, listening to this uh, while you're doing your work, which you absolutely should be doing, you're going to have some raised eyebrows because that's what an episode like this does. It, it raises concern in your fandom whether or not whether or not this show actually deserves the uh, the defamation that it's that it's received over the course of all this time. Now we're yeah, gonna if you're screaming at us if you're screaming at us while you're uh, sitting in traffic on the 405, uh, you know, just take notes and uh, send it off to us later. Absolutely, absolutely. And there are a couple of people that wrote in uh, to the Babel conference on our post and uh, in our section here, hailing frequencies open. Hailing frequencies are open. Emily Whiteacre actually said, I actually kind of love Spock's brain. I mean, I know that it's objectively not the best story and the acting is kind of cheesy, but I always have such a blast watching it. It is one of those episodes that is super nostalgic for me, drawing on, well, it would in um, a previous week's Standard Orbit topic, but because I have found fond memories watching it with my dad and just laughing so much, I think it might be a case of an episode being so bad that it's good. There are certainly a lot of TOS episodes that I think are much worse, but Spock's brain seems to always top the worst episode lists. Thank you for that, Emily. And Adam Drozen writes, Spock's brain is an interesting and worthwhile because it is so off format and jarring to the universally agreed upon classic episodes like the Corbinite Maneuver or Balance of Terror. Consider the Roddenberry box as it came to be known during the Rick Berman era and TOS episodes like this in Cat's Paw, which is seriously one of my favorites, are so far away from that Roddenberry box idea of what a Star Trek episode feels like. I find this tremendously cool and the canonically great episode that are much richer for the juxtaposition. And that's just variety, variety being the spice of life. So thank you, Emily, and thank you, Adam, for your participation on the Babel Conference. We look forward to hearing your response of this show and if you feel the same way after you've heard some of our deliberation. And Ken, we have an email that came in during the course of our tenure in the last few episodes. So would you like to read that for us, please? This letter to Standard Orbit reads, I really enjoyed the podcast today, but I have a couple of issues. One, the new trailer did worry me a lot, but you all changed my mind on that. I like 2009 a lot, but when they did Into Darkness, that gives me every reason to worry. That movie made it to where I'm worried about what they do with the show that I love. I hope you can't blame me on that. I'm hopeful that Beyond will be the Trek that I love. I'm going to see it in the theater and give it a chance. I saw 2009 in the theater and enjoyed it. But when the other one came out, it was the first Star Trek I never saw in theater. I waited for it on Blu-ray and was glad I only spent $1.50 at Redbox to rent it. Thank you for doing a great show. Robert Womack. So, Robert, that's um, good feedback. We appreciate that. And um, I think we're all in alignment with you. Let's, let's give this one a shot. Yeah, Robert on the Babel conference uh, is known as Trey. Uh, he clarified that for me, and that was yeah, and that was in response to episode one thirteen where we discussed the Star Trek Beyond trailer, and that has been getting a lot of really great feedback on the Babel conference. And we can't thank you guys enough for being so supportive and so participatory in all of our threads there because it means a lot to us that the original series fans are being represented and. What you want is what we want. We want to be able to talk about all of the different dimensions that the original series has brought to you over the course of time and where it's going to go. And Spock's brain really is just part of the overall great tapestry that is the original series. 
without it, we wouldn't be having this discussion, obviously. But also, without it, there are just moments of characterization that we would miss out on. Would I recommend to skip this episode in Season 3? Absolutely not. Would you want to watch it over and over and over again? Say like you would with City on the Edge of Forever, or Balance of Terror, or The Corbomite Maneuver, or Mirror Mirror? I don't think so. But it doesn't really take the value away out of at least watching it one, two, maybe three times because there are some great moments in it and I do think that you will find value of it if you want to find value in it and that's really up to you. So in our final thoughts, gentlemen, are there any other issues that you have with Spock's brain that you need to exercise out of your subconsciouses? I really enjoyed the episode and I know that there are other people that have enjoyed it as well. Um, There have been references to it all over the place, like I said, with the... uh, the textbook. I mean, they even made a little reference to it in Deep Space Nine with uh, the Vorta that they brought back for uh, um, the Magnificent Ferengi. Um, and it, it's it's a lot of fun to watch. I don't watch it all the time. I'll, usually I only watch it when I'm doing a, a rewatch of the entire series. Um, it's not one that I usually pull out and pop in, but uh, I, I do watch it occasionally. And it's... Like I said, it's it's a lot of fun. It started out really strong. It got, you know, kind of crashed and burned a little bit at the end, but it was a really great premise and a really strong start to it. And with a little bit more tweaking, if they'd had more time for to work on the script, I think it could have been a great episode. Concur. It, uh, it, it's not something that I, that I would watch on a regular basis, but just like any Star Trek episode, if it's on, I'm going to watch it and... Uh, I always kind of just laughed at it, you know. I think to uh, to Emily's point, it's it was so much fun, and and you could just kind of sit back and, like you said, everybody, you know, look at the first season of of TNG. There's there's three or four right in that same category. We just go really, and and you just kind of gotta laugh at it because you know that there's there's improved episodes coming, and uh, and they did it right. And you know, and speaking specifically about our podcast today. I want to thank Adam Drozen for teaching me the word canically. That is awesome. You know, that uh, when he wrote that word, that it's canically great episodes. I'm going to try to keep trying to figure out how I can use that in sentences in my meetings at work. Canically. Sorry. (laughs) You know, I agree with um, just the sentiment of Spock's brain. Yes, it was a lot of fun. Uh, It was so bad it was good at times. Absolutely. And I don't think that... In and of itself, Spock's brain speaks for the quality of the overall third season. The overall third season has gems. I mean, fantastic parts that just really resonate and still hold the merit of the original series. There are peaks and valleys in each one of the series. And yes, Ken, you're right. In Well, I'm not going to single out just the next generation. Every single series in the entirety of Star Trek have their Spock's brain. I mean, let's take a look at the end of season, was it, Jeff, was it season two of Enterprise Stormfront? Or was it season three? Uh, That was season three. Yeah, where all of a sudden the space Nazis are at the end of the episode. I mean, that (laughs) threw everything just right on it. I mean, they turned the entire series of a great season three on its head with one scene, let alone the removal of a brain. So, you know, let's... Yeah. Go ahead, Ken. That's a good point. No, yeah. no, that's a good point. I was just thinking as you were saying that, and I was reflecting, you could, if, if, if you were looking at Threshold, the Voyager episode, you would say, great premise, great start, ended like Spock's brain. Mm-hmm. I mean, the same thing with Extinction, the same thing with Justice. I mean, they're... Not to, you know, not to stick pins in, in all of these different series, but when you take a look at, at, at the entirety of it, and you take a breath and you step back and you take a look at it and you want to find what you want to find in the inter- entertainment value of what you're watching, you will find it. And you will also laugh with this one because there are some really incredibly goofy moments. And hey, what Star Trek without a little bit of humor, right? So you're absolutely right. And you know, it's funny because we're talking it in family. We can have fun with it. But if somebody who hated Star Trek started ranking on it, we'd be all over them. And we'd point out all the good things about the episode. We would be over them like a cheap 72-degree suit. 
So, <laughs> well, fellas, well it's been fantastic talking about Spock's brain this week on Standard Orbit, but this isn't the only topic we've been talking about here on Trek FM. So here's a quick look at some of the other things we have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. With Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Uhura, Chekhov, Scotty, Sulu, and the Enterprise. That is your crew. That is the family of the original series. And yes, we would like to see that maintained and protected and treated with reverence. Earl Grey. This 547 meter long, 32 deck, 502 uh, 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 crew uh, uh, member. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. To the journey. Wow. Part of me is going, wow, this is really good. Another part of me is going, really? Like, this is what you spend your time on? I kind of wish that we could use the whole time that we allot for our podcast for you to read this synopsis, because I really enjoyed story time with Tristan. <laughs> Warp 5. If they could have kind of told us it's more of a future for us, but we're going to build up to the Star Trek you know. And Larry's uh, comment back was, well, that would mean that they kind of were planning it out and they knew what they were doing ahead of time. <laughs> but sing. <laughs> that sounds right. like Larry. Commentary, Trek stars. And I can see, you know, Abrams recognizing that talent and being like, you know what? I know that you can make a good movie here. You know, I'm not convinced that I can yet, but I think that you can. And I'm going to learn from you, too, so that one day I can make a Star Wars movie. The 602 Club. How do these kids work for you, especially in this first movie? It's amazing when you look back on, on how far they've come and the chemistry that they had right off the bat, because from the word go, when they were on the Hogwarts Express all at the same time, that's really when it, it took off. That's really when the movie took off for me. Literary Treks. I was given a couple of mandates for Rough Beasts of Empire, one of which was, of course, jump the story ahead four years. Another was get Cisco back on a starship um, and also have Spock uh, in, in, the, in the story. Meta Trex. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure Kern is really the best example in that case because, you know, while he's having an, an existential crisis, he doesn't remember having one. So. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's the real answer. Maybe to, that is uh, the real answer. L l lobotomy is the, is the answer to an existential crisis. So. Melodic treks. I personally had no problem with the way Tasha Yar died in Skin of Evil. Space is a dangerous place, and I know that we like to see our heroes give their lives in a grand and fashionable manner, but sometimes they just meet an oil slick and get electrocuted by it. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So Mr. Ataz, there are a lot of different ways that our listeners can find us across the interwebs, so please let our listeners know all the different avenues that they can find us and reach out to us to make sure that they get their standard orbit on Trek.fm. Well, you can find us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website at Trek.fm and grab the RSS link as well. And if you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. That makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes, and it helps us increase our visibility for new listeners. And that is absolutely one of the best ways in, in helping us as a network try and promote the show. If you would like to leave a review for us on iTunes, we would love to hear what you have to say. There's a star rating involved, so if you feel like we've deserved the highest that you can give us, we would love that because we absolutely enjoy doing this podcast for you. There's no better reward for us than to hear your feedback, positive or negative, because we want to make sure that we're constructing all this great content for you. That's one way of being able to support the network. Another and just as important, if not more important way to support the network is through a program called Patreon. If you visit us at patreon.com slash trekfm, you can actually see how to directly support the network through funding. Now, the way I'd like to describe this is if you've ever seen a public broadcasting service commercial, they, they talk about the different ways that you can support the programming on that particular channel. And patreon.com slash trekfm allows you to choose however you would like to support that. So Ken, if you wouldn't mind, please let our listeners know what their options are 
on Patreon.com to be able to take care of us as a network. Patreon is our online service that allows our listeners to contribute to Trek.fm. And by contributing to the network, you not only get to listen to our incredibly talented hosts on your favorite Star Trek podcast, you get great perks like access to the Patron Zone, where Chris has provided download screensavers and other items for you to enjoy. For $15 a month, you get to try your hand at podcasting by joining in on the Patrons Roundtable twice monthly. And for $25 a month, you get to become an associate producer for whichever podcast you choose. Every incremental donation from that point on has additional perks. So please, go to patreon.com, and I'll spell that for you. It's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com for Trek.fm and become a Trek.fm Patreon. Thank you for contributing. You know, the interesting thing about that program is that there's no obligation for you to do this. But if you do enjoy the programming that you're listening to on our network, we urge you strongly to be able to support us there because this is a volunteer-run organization. We spend a great deal of our personal time being able to bring all of this content to you, and we love doing so. I mean, let's put it this way. I'm talking to all of you, so is Ken, and so is Jeff, about the original series. How awesome is that? I mean, really? We're taking an hour out of our day to talk about Star Trek, the original series, and you can help us Always make that a reality every week with your support on patreon.com slash trekfm. There's also a really cool way of being able to show your support as a fan and a friend of the network. And if you go to redbubble.com and type in trekfm in their search field, you will see a myriad, a wealth, a variety of all different types of designs that you can wear on your t-shirts, that you can wear on your iPhone covers, on your iPhone, on your iPads, on mugs, however you want to express your fandom. It's there for you, and it's designed by our very own Aaron Harvey, who has done a fantastic job making sure that your Trek FM logo and apparel looks absolutely fantastic. So please visit redbubble.com slash trekfm. And we couldn't do this show without our associate producers. Thank you always always to Renee Roberts and Richard Rutledge. Thank you for your patronage on patreon.com. And you can find Renee on Twitter at mres underscore 1701 and Richard at rut8972. So if you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page. You can also go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm. Facebook, facebook.com slash trekfm, and the Babel Conference. Probably one of the coolest ways to get in touch with us is on the Babel Conference. It's our Facebook listeners-only page, and we have amazing conversations about all things Trek FM and continue the conversations from the podcasts to those feeds. And we have so many great fans there talking about, just like this, Spock's brain. A lot of our feedback came from the Babel Conference, which is a great thing. So please visit us there. Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, type that in on your search field in Facebook. So Jeff, if our fans would like to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Please let them know all the different ways to get in touch with Mr. Ataz. Well, if you don't have access to an Atavacron and you can't take your ship at warp speed around a star in a slingshot maneuver, you can always find me on the Babel Conference on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter at Harlander and I'm also a supporter of the network through Patreon. Uh, have been for uh, quite some time now. Uh, you can check out my website. It's been called The Grand Unified Theory of Star Trek at trekopedia.com. And if you guys can't see this, and not even going to like, it's so cool that I wish I could share this photo with you, but there's a giant helmet that's lowering down on Jeff's head as we speak. <laughs> I'm a little jealous, and I'm probably going to have to like wrestle him for the great teacher's knowledge. So we also have Ken Tripp. Ken, our chief engineer, our chief sound engineer for Standard Orbit. And please, Ken, tell everyone how they can get in touch with you across the interwebs and across subspace. Yes, please, please reach out uh, through the Babel Conference. That's where you can find me. I'm on Facebook, uh, but that's where I hang out the most. And, and I, I very intently you know, read everything that comes across. And uh, feel free to IM me through, through Facebook as well. And if you have some really good trivia that you could feed me, so that we could see if we could stump Mr. Ataz, please, I am me. Don't put it on the Babel Conference. He'll read it, but I am me, and I'll save it. I'll give you credit for it. Maybe we'll come up with some ideas that we can reward somebody that uh, 
can come up with something to stump Jeff because he is an incredible wealth of knowledge, but I'd really like to test him. Are we going to actually make that a segment, Stump Mr. Atos? I love that. I would love to make that a segment, <laughs> Stump Mr. Atos. All right, let's put that in the notes. You can try. <laughs> <laughs> So if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can always find me here at Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast, the original series, along with Jeff. You can always find me on the network as one of the executive producers. Now, I've recently changed my Twitter handle, so you can find me at Starfighter1701. And I am a proud supporter of this network through patreon.com slash trekfm. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit.